everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to talk about Season 3, Episode 13, Ghost Facers. Ghost Facers. <laughs> Written by Ben Edlund and directed by Phil Segresha. I'm really sorry that I am choosing not to use the Ghost Facers theme song in this episode, but... Everybody can go listen to it online. Um, <laughs> I don't want to have my episode pulled down, even though it's not monetized and I'm not running ads or anything else. I'm not stealing content from the show. <laughs> this episode is the one that almost had me change my tag for Chuck to Lazy Fat Cat, because those Hollywood writers, you know, that's the one of the lines they use in this episode. Lazy fat. They're just lazy fat cats. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of Chuck. <laughs> benefiting from the struggles of the real lives of Sam and Dean Winchester for fun and profit, I guess. I don't know. This is the first episode, though, to be written and filmed after the writer's strike ended. So that's all in the past now. They know they have four episodes left to wrap up the season. They're coming back from Juice and Bellow and then two months of nothing they needed to make an episode quickly, and this was a good, cool concept that sort of meta to the world that we live in, as well as being meta to the world Sam and Dean live in. It also gives us our first concrete date in the canon timeline in a while. Like, I've been kind of fudging and going, eh, it's somewhere between three and two months until Dean's deal comes due for the last few episodes, and I'm not going back and editing any of that because at the time we just don't know what the timeline is. It's just somewhere getting close to the end of Dean's deal. This gives us a concrete date, February 29th, 2008, leap year, even though it originally aired on April 24th, 2008. So it's really accelerated the canon timeline over those months that we missed and we're having to go back and catch up because we know Dean's deal will come due May 2nd, 2008. Happy birthday, Sam Winchester. That's Sam's birthday. It was yesterday as I'm recording this in our real time in this world. But uh, tell me this is Dean getting dragged to hell isn't the worst birthday present Sam ever got. (laughs) Poor guy. So as this episode takes place, they're hunting something that only comes around once every four years. They've got one chance to do it before Dean will be gone forever, he assumes. And yet when they get there, they're not alone. We welcome the Hellhounds back to the show from season one, except now they've upgraded into the Ghost Facers. Their last run-in with the Winchesters started with an inadvertently generated tulpa that they'd accidentally made themselves, and the false belief that they actually knew and understood anything about anything, and it ended with pranks being played on them and the burning of the entire mythology and lore that they were trying to capture on film, just burning it to the ground, literally and metaphorically speaking. They should have been stopped at that point, but no, they persisted. (laughs) They evolved. And they're still firm in the belief that ghosts really are out there, and they're desperate to capture it on film so they can prove that fact to the world. They're just so woefully uninformed about the reality of what they're stumbling into, that it nearly gets them killed again, and and it does get Corbett killed. I'm not sure Sam and Dean could have completed the hunt on their own either, just because of the nature of the ghost. It didn't come out until the lockdown happened. They couldn't have even known what they were hunting completely without the evidence that the ghost facers provided them inadvertently, and without a little assist from Ghost Corbett towards the end, who actually is the one who gets rid of the ghost once and for all. Maybe Sam and Dean would have come up with a different solution to all these problems if they hadn't been interfered with and hadn't had to run around spending time taking care of all these other poor, innocent, stupid civilians who stumbled into this dangerous situation, unbeknownst to them. So maybe they could have solved it otherwise, but the way this episode is cut together kind of makes it look like they needed the ghost facers. And I'll get to that at the end of this little entry segment, but I just wanted to mention that here. This one's also meta on the level of just how it feels like a bit of catharsis after the writer's strike ended. 
it's a scripted episode made to look like a reality television show, which had taken over primetime broadcasting for the months that the writers were on strike. And how meta is it that Dean watches the episode and then erases any trace that it ever happened? I mean, for obvious reasons, he can't, you know, they've just been declared legally dead in the previous episode we watched, broadcasting their faces on national television or YouTube or anywhere is probably a poor choice. So Sam and Dean obviously could not let this footage out, but also because this is something that the show touches on randomly throughout the series, that putting this information out to the general public about ghosts and hunting and the reality of monsters in their world is just not something that people are going to do well with. And I'll touch on that again in a minute, but we're going through this in an orderly fashion here so I can get through it without going off on random tangents constantly like I'm doing right now. (laughs) I swear I'm trying to get better at this, folks. It's also the episode that does the most to push the network censors buttons, metaphorically speaking, because of the conceit of the episode that it's all shot through the reality television show lens of people in the episode and intruding into the Winchester's daily lives, we can see them at their realest. They actually curse and not just freaking and crap. And they use the real good curse words because they can just be bleeped out because that's the conceit of reality television that is capturing a bit of reality and Anything that can't air will be censored out. Unlike a script for Supernatural that's being filmed specifically for broadcast television, where those words can't even be in the script, we're seeing a more in-the-moment and real version of Sam and Dean than we do anywhere else in the series, and I really appreciate this episode for that. It puts the lens of the entire episode into the hands of regular people who are just witnessing these events instead of the hands of a capital A author of the narrative, which is meta on every level in Supernatural. It's also an episode that tidally synecticizes, synected, <sighs> is that a word? That's not a word, is it? Synecticy, you know, it takes the macrocosm and displays it in microcosm. It's also one of the main concepts that I have devoted my meta writing to over the course of my meta writing for Supernatural. The spiral narrative. Everything that goes around will eventually come around again in a slightly revised way or in a different level of the plot or on a different level of the cosmos or whatever. Like the characters will all be in different places and, oh, this happened to Sam last time, but it's happening to Dean now and he's getting to see it from Sam's point. You know, everything that happens happens again and again and again because Chuck keeps telling the same story over and over again. But this episode has a lot of reminders of smaller scale repeats of loops that reflect onto the larger narrative as well. Like the first ghosts they encounter are death echoes who are stuck in a loop. That's literally how they're described in the episode, reliving their moments around their death over and over again and unable to escape that tiny loop. Freeman Daggett is trapped in his own loop, reliving his once every four years birthday with a depressing as fuck birthday party with his captive audience of other random dead people that he stole to bring to his dismal party that literally takes place in a bomb shelter. (laughs) Anyone who intrudes on the party is killed and invited to celebrate as well. How awful. It's pretty ironic that a dude who is so trapped in this horrific loop is named Freeman. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not so much. I mean, it's what he wanted He wanted his little happy party, and he chose it, and he keeps choosing it, but uh, he's not actually free. He's literally trapped in a bomb shelter. He's just listening to the same line of It's My Party over and over again. Not even the whole song. Not even a whole verse of the song. Just one line over and over and over again. Symbolic of the loop he's stuck himself in. The whole episode also runs on a strange loop. It doesn't start with the usual title card. It doesn't start with the usual opening credits. It jumps right into the Ghost Facers episode. And we only come out of the Ghost Facers episode to see the actual episode of Supernatural at the very end of the episode, 
when Dean finishes watching the recording and that's where the supernatural really begins. And that's where the closing credits begin as well. It's a very different style of episode entirely. And throughout it, we are in Dean's point of view. We don't know that. We're in Sam and Dean's point of view, watching this episode with them as they watch it. So we had the ghost who was afraid, so afraid that he has his birthday party in a bomb shelter with corpses. But we also have the ghost facers fears. They have their little camera lenses to look through to watch all of this happen. And several times through the episode, it's commented on that, yes, they feel safer watching these horrors happen through the lens instead of having to watch them in real time and deal with them and confront them. Because we get to watch Supernatural through a TV. We don't have to like deal with it and stand there right next to Sam and Dean fighting these horrors. We get this distance from the show, even if it affects us. We're watching this episode through their lens and through the edited version of everything that happened. They were telling their story of what happened whoever edited the Ghost Facers episode. And we didn't see the entirety of what happened that night. But we can infer that some other things may have happened. But we see the entire thing from their point of view, as well as the point of view of the story they wanted uh, to convey with this episode. We have the divide between the Ghost Facers and their mission to prove ghosts are real versus our position in the audience, which we have through the Winchesters, because there are guys, even if this episode is technically from the Ghost Facers' point of view. We've been watching Supernatural since the pilot episode, where we were basically told point blank, ghosts are real, this is what we do, we hunt monsters and ghosts, and all of this is real. But the Ghost Facers haven't even convincingly seen a ghost. They're just trying to prove they exist, even. They don't have any clue of this whole larger universe of things happening in their world, that they're just completely unaware of and have no idea how to cope with. They just want to capture it on film because, boy, wouldn't that be neat (laughs) to be able to prove the existence of things that we very clearly know, Sam and Dean know all too much about. So their ignorance makes them feel more confident than they might otherwise. Within this episode, we also see what it takes to break free of a loop of the story. Thanks again to Corbett we see Ed break him out of his death echo loop. Ed is actually able to free him through the power of love. And yes, they kind of make a a joke at its expense in the episode, but it's something that Supernatural uses over and over again. We refer to these as the crypt scenes in the show. There is so much meta on the crypt scenes, it's ridiculous. But honestly, this is a sort of small, small, small version of that sort of breaking through mind control or breaking through and and reaching a loved one through the power of love. Dean tried yelling at the death echoes and nothing happened, tried to shake them up out of it. And that didn't work. Ed first tries the same thing with Corbett. It doesn't work at first. Corbett doesn't recognize him. He tries to tell him that Corbett's important to the team and, you know, we need you kind of the exact sort of phrasing used in every crypt scene we know ever. When I refer to the crypt scenes, I'm referring to the thing that we all know from 817 Goodbye Stranger, where Dean breaks through Cass's programming from heaven and reaches him and pulls him out of that brainwashing originally scripted to be I love you, but ended up being I need you. And that's what we get here. We get Ed having to use that same phrasing to reach Corbett. And it works. Corbett does what he can to save them all. And the tragedy of the fact that he'd already lost his life because of this. And that was the end of his story. But uh, yeah, love, love really should have been the escape route that saved them all. And... Uh, My notes at this point just say generalized grumbling about the series finale. So insert that here. You can pause and grumble to yourself about how big a failing the series finale was. And, you know, we're going to move on with this episode. The Ghost Facers were victims of survivorship bias. They went into this with woefully incomplete research. Nothing they found ever demonstrated that anyone had ever successfully spent the night in this house because 
Nobody had ever told the tale of having done so. Well, that's because everybody who ever tried to spend the night there died or disappeared. They didn't have that bit of information. But if, it, if they did, it really may have changed their choices in going in there in the first place, knowing that everybody who'd ever tried to spend the night there died versus nobody ever successfully spent the night there. Well, yeah, because they all died, moron. <laughs> but they didn't have that information. And gosh, doesn't that describe so much of the series that Sam and Dean may have had limited choices, but only because they didn't know there were other options available or they didn't know the fuller picture of the story. And yeah, there's a few times in, in the series where they go ahead and make the horrible decision anyways, even with at least surface level information that this is a huge mistake, <laughs> but they do it anyway. But especially in these early seasons, a lot of it is them just becoming aware gradually of this much larger picture that they're part of and seeing, hell, we do have other choices. We don't have to be stuck with these horrible choices that we've got. We can make bigger, worse choices <laughs> based on more information that we'll have. Like you go back and look at the early seasons and things like Phantom Traveler with Specky the Wonder Demon and they're like, oh boy, this is so above our pay grade. And you just laugh now because it's like, okay, they've literally fought Lucifer and the King of Hell and Abaddon and Lilith. And they fought all these demons and succeeded. And it's like, Specky was a huge threat. Oh my God. They've really leveled up. <laughs> the ghost facers are on that we don't even know what a real ghost looks like level, let alone what to do if we see one. They just are totally lacking in knowledge. And they make terrible choices because of it. But they also become very important throughout canon anyway, in just very tiny ways, but very important tiny ways. The few things they did learn actually become relevant in canon. Shocking. Their YouTube channel exists in their world proving that no amount of making real information about ghosts and hunting available to the general public will actually convince the general population that this is a real thing that they should be aware of or concerned about. Chuck uses them later, or at least the angels in heaven who are planning this whole apoc apocalypse shindig, uses them later. Cass will visit them during their web series that exists in our universe, to inform them that the apocalypse is happening and that they are to bear witness to it. And they continue producing real videos about actual hunting techniques that the Winchesters will need desperately later in season four when their memory wiped and still forced to hunt a ghost with no prior knowledge that ghosts are even real. So ghost facers will become relevant to saving their lives at some point, which is just hilarious to me. I mean, they even insert that same video in season 14 when the kids in Lebanon are learning more about ghosts and stuff via the Ghost Facers website before Jack talks to them and you know, gives them the real stuff. Just another strange loop, more manipulation of the story. And I just always like to point back to this episode as why it's really best for hunters to just keep doing things the way they do in secrecy and protecting people from even having to know about most of this stuff. Because every time it's ever escaped the bubble, it's almost never gone well. I'd like to read a paragraph that I wrote about the Ghost Facers back in 2019, about Chuck and his relationship to them. Chuck maybe is just amused by them. Maybe he likes their style. After all, they made wild little shows for him to watch and enjoy. Just like his main show, he engineers out of the Winchester's lives. Maybe he just feels a bit of a kindred to them for that. So they're both manipulating the story for their own means and ends. And I like to think that Chuck would admire them for that at least a little bit. We have only a few bonus items for this episode. Of course, the Ghost Facers web series that I mentioned is online. I think you can still watch it. It's also on the Season 5 Blu-rays and DVDs. Even if you only have five minutes to spare for it, the whole series isn't that long. But 
at least watch episode 11 found footage where they very reluctantly meet Cass. And it's just so amusing. So that does tie their place into canon and why their videos become relevant to Heaven and the Angels like Zachariah manipulated Cass into making sure that they were looped into the apocalypse, even in this peripheral way, so that they could be used in this hunt that Zachariah was setting up for Sam and Dean to take care of in episode 17 of next season. So hilarious loops upon loops. There's also a 16 minute long short feature on the Blu-ray for season three, this Blu-ray that I'm watching right now, that functions like an intro to the Ghost Facers. You get to meet the team to see the full confessional clips that they recorded for the making of the episode, including the small clips that did make it into the episode, but they give fuller context to those clips and sometimes change the meaning. Some of these clips are recorded before the events of the episode. Some are recorded after the events at the Morton house, and it's kind of becomes clear which are which. I mean, because Corbett's in some of them, and we know he's not around to film afterwards. Some of the shots of Ed and Harry and even of Spruce are clearly filmed after the events because they're talking about Sam and Dean and what their thoughts are on them. And even after those events, Harry still refers to them as amateurs because they didn't try and get any of it on film. And it's like, dude, that's the point. They don't want it on film you moron. You barely survived this horror. And yet you still are just thinking that this is a good idea. We should just get this on film. But this little video that was edited to look like this was a package product that the ghost facers made to send to networks about them and the show and everything. And that's even the setup at the intro to it. Edlin just loves to mess with the meta. (laughs) And he even puts those words into Maggie's mouth in this outtake bundle, except she calls it Nita. <laughs> but referring to the pillars in ancient Rome, were, which were turning points on a racetrack. So he doesn't come right out and say it, but he puts that concept in your brain. It also shows a clear bias of the editor of the Ghost Facers episode that we watched. Was it Ed or Harry or Spruce or all three of them? But they clearly had a bias in telling the story that they wanted to tell. I was going to talk about this just a bit anyways, because cultural sensitivity and all of that, because in this longer excerpt of Spruce talking about his family in the, in the show, he only mentions that he's 15 16th Jewish and 1 16th Cherokee. And that is one of his great, great grandfathers was a peyote addict and degenerate gambler. And that's all it says in the episode. But if you listen to the longer outtake, the peyote addict and degenerate gambler was the one who married his Cherokee great-great-grandmother, not his great-great-grandfather. He was one of the Jewish guys who just happened to be a peyote addict and a degenerate gambler. But it turns that assumption, without him having to say it, upside down. But it's stripped of that context in the edited episode we saw, reminding us that everything we watch has been edited for context, and that we're supposed to read the author's intents into it. Why did they make these choices? It's valid for us to question that. So that's what we're going to do. It's worth a watch if you have the DVD. So I think that's just about all for the recap of this episode. Let's go ahead into the then segment, which being that this wasn't the mid-season return of the show, but a sort of a tacked on bit. We don't get a road so far segment. We just get a regular old then segment that starts with Dean talking about killing some evil sons of bitches and raising a little hell. And then it shows them banishing various ghosts and creatures. Most specifically, it focuses on Dean being attacked by and then killing the djinn. Then it reminds us of Dean's deal with hell because, oh boy, is the clock ticking down even faster now on that one. We get the rush version of him making the deal to bring Sam back. Sam coming back. Dean talking about how he doesn't want to go to hell and he only had it got a year. Then we go right into being reminded of the ghost facers, Ed Zedmore and Harry Spengler, who are a couple of morons who stumbled 
into a case that they actually made worse themselves. It wasn't a case until they broadcast the tulpa of it and changed all the events and nearly got themselves and Sam and Dean killed. After Ed states in the flashback that this is their ticket to the big time, fame, money, sex with girls, they specify to show that because, hmm, his interests seem slightly different in this episode. It starts to go to the supernatural title card and then it sort of fritzes out and it cuts to Ed and Harry in a masterpiece theater living room type setup. In, except they're in old, nasty-looking, tweed-looking chairs in front of a fake electric fire, thinking they look so sophisticated, introducing us to the episode we are about to watch. They're pitching this series as an unsolicited pilot to network executives everywhere to replace shows that they lost due to the writer's strike. Which, mwah, perfect touch. Thank you, Ben Edlund. But they are so overly dramatic and overacting this whole bit. And then it goes into their title card, the Ghost Facers theme song. Love the slow motion walk that Ed and Harry give carrying their little Ghost Facers briefcases. And they're trying to look like they're doing everything in slow motion, like they couldn't have filmed it in slow-mo because a car goes driving by by in the background at full speed and it just makes them look ridiculous yet that's the shot they chose to leave in they figured this framed their entrance the way they wanted to be framed because remember they made this show I'm not going to point out everything in this episode or even go moment by moment like I normally do but I need to point out the shirt that Ed is wearing it looks like it says God speed on it and I can't make out the whole thing because he's wearing a jacket over it And it has like a little Hermes or Mercury, depending on which pantheon we're referring to, the little winged shoe on it. And I just think that's interesting considering what I was saying in the opening segment of this podcast about their connection to Chuck in the whole grand scheme. So even though Chuck wasn't even a thought in the writer's minds yet, I just think that's an interesting choice for him to wear in this episode. That is about how stories get told at least on some level. So after we meet Ed and Harry again, in their own words, from their own point of view, we're introduced to the rest of their little crew, starting with Alan J. Corbett, the intern and cook, who was only intrigued by Ed putting up flyers at the mall, advertising for people to help them out with their ghost facing, because it's clear that he was attracted to Ed and wanted an excuse to be able to spend time with the guy. He's kind of shy and bumbling. He never really admits his feelings to Ed. He's just happy to be there with him. Interesting dynamic, right? And like, not at all like Dean and Cass, ever, I'm sure. We meet Ed's adopted sister that he's very clearly informing people is his adopted sister, Maggie. And then we meet Spruce, the cameraman and sort of technical guy. They describe the hunt that they're planning on going on to the Morton house, where once every four years on February 29th, the house becomes the most haunted place in America. And Maggie mentions that nobody has ever stayed the night. And Harry confirms that, yes, every eyewitness testimony we've managed to dig up, everybody has always cut and run before midnight. Well, that's because you were looking specifically for eyewitness testimony. They're not interested in the facts or the truth of what this house is or why it's haunted or they don't even really understand the mechanisms of what makes a haunting. They're looking for evidence of it. And that would be from eyewitness testimony. And obviously nobody who died in the house would be able to write eyewitness testimony for them to read. And they will learn this fact the hard way. Harry is uncomfortable with Corbett being there because he thinks that Corbett has the hots for Ed and that it could spell trouble for the team. And yeah, it's clear. It's evident, 100%. By the way, all of this is framed that Corbett does have the hots for Ed and Ed is kind of completely oblivious to it. And yet nobody points this out to him until 
<laughs> much later in the episode when it sort of becomes a critical fact that they need to save their lives. <laughs> they're setting up this whole meeting and they're making this big plan and talking about how if we don't do it this time, we'll have to wait four more years. And then all of a sudden everything starts shaking and their whole bulletin board and, and case wall with all their notes and stuff on it just starts shaking and moving and we realize that's because they're in a garage and somebody outside is opening the automatic garage door and trying to pull their car in there, even though they've got it set up like an office and a film studio. This is Ed's family's garage and his dad is just trying to go about his life and his son is just <laughs> taking over the place. The poor guy looks kind of apologetic from behind the wheel of the car. He's like, oh, yeah, sorry. And, uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we could just cut this part. And it's like, you should have just cut this part. <laughs> but they didn't. They left that in as a scene break and went to phase two, where they're scoping out the Morton house. They described the fact that the police, you know, are fed up with people trying to break into the Morton house. They have it very well fenced off. They have bolt cutters to cut through the chain to break through the fence. And Maggie's like, wait, did you guys get a permit or something? And Harry's like, yeah, it's a good idea for next time. So, like, they're totally off the books on this one. They're trying to be, like, all covert. They have, like, night vision goggles, and they're trying to be quiet and stay low and hidden. And <laughs> meanwhile, Sam and Dean just drive up blasting rock music and stopping to check the place out. And before they pull around and park somewhere off out of the way and to sneak back to the house themselves, they don't even try to be sneaky. The ghost facers are afraid that Sam and Dean's car pulling up could be cops trying to root them out. But no, they judge them to be, quote, hicks. It's shocking that Ed and Harry don't recognize the car at this point or recognize Sam and Dean at this point, even though Spruce got a really good shot of their faces. Then we get a little montage of them setting up their base camp, rearranging furniture, mounting cameras around the building, getting all their equipment set up. Because remember, they're not there to investigate why this ghost is here or to banish this ghost or anything. They're just here to try and capture evidence that it even exists. So once they get cameras set up all over the house, basement, second floor, they come back down and Corbett is decked out. He's got body cameras. He's got headgear. He's got everything is just automatically recording everything he does. Did he bring this equipment with him? Is this like something they talked him into wearing? Or is this his own thing that he thought would be a good idea? Who knows? But it becomes plot relevant later in the episode. They split up into groups. Ed and Corbett go upstairs together and Harry and Maggie go to another part of the house together. Paired off into little romantic couple pairings. Their equipment starts fritzing. Spruce's camera starts glitching, and they don't have an explanation for as to why, but as we know that ghosts affect cameras on this show. Harry tries to kick down the door to a room that's shut, and he just is, like, tapping on the door with his foot. Like, that's not how you kick down a door. And Spruce suggests that he just turn the knob, and Maggie reaches in and turns the knob, and he just pushes it open with his foot. Like, heck dude. <laughs> Good thing you didn't actually have to kick anything apart in this episode because you would have died. <laughs> and he opens the door and there's a dead rat on the floor. He goes running screaming from the room and Spruce is just like, uh, it's just a dead rat. And then we cut back to one of the clips from the confessionals series in the video of him saying that he really doesn't like rats. When Harry comes back trying to play it cool, talking about spectral apparitions and what they... Spruce just throws the dead rat at him. And he's like, that's not funny. So that's the level that these guys are at. They, they have no idea what they're doing as far as an actual ghost hunt goes. We cut back to Corbett, who's now filming in night vision, trying to get a glimpse of something. But you can hear his breathing is fast and hard and you can see the terror on his face from the camp from one of his body cameras that's pointed back at his own face. He is just absolutely terrified to be there. He's the most scared of all of them. When they turn around and two flashlights come into the room and somebody says, freeze, police. 
And of course, we recognize Dean's voice. And their cover is very rapidly blown by Ed and Harry, who remember them, those jerks from Texas, because they met them in Texas before. But also, Jensen and Jared are both from Texas. So ha ha, little joke. But to Ed, once again, this is a we beat you where we were here first situation, thinking that Sam and Dean are just trying to steal their glory instead of like actually taking care of this ghost and banishing it because Ed and Harry have no clue. Dean finally gets this message across by just physically shoving Ed up against the wall and demanding answers. Upstairs, Harry, Spruce, and Maggie are still investigating, have no idea that Sam and Dean are there yet. Spruce complains that his camera chip is probably on the fritz and he has no idea what's messing with it, but their EMF meter is skyrocketing and the temperature has dropped 11 degrees in the room when all of a sudden something does materialize. They witness this apparition of a man who is apparently being mugged and is shot to death by his attacker. And then the ghost fritzes out and they're just standing there like open mouthed, like what the hell did we just see? Downstairs, Sam and Dean are interrogating Ed and Corbett. Like, what are you doing at the Morton house? This is a dangerous place on a leap year. Are you crazy? Corbett says, yeah, no one's ever spent the night. And Dean's like, uh, yeah, they have, except nobody lived to talk about it. And Ed just thinks they're being hyperbolic or overly dramatic. And Sam just gets out of his duffel bag and pulls out stacks of information about what has actually happened in this house that Ed's research gave him no indication of at all because he wasn't searching death records and or coroner's reports. He was only searching for eyewitness testimony. Just as Sam tells Ed, they don't have a lot of time because starting at midnight, your friends are going to die. That's when the three from upstairs who had just witnessed a ghost come running down the stairs screaming, oh my God, oh my God, unaware of the situation that they're running right into, which freezes them in their tracks. So while Sam and Dean are urgently trying to shoo everybody out of danger here, they're all too excited about this apparition that they saw that they have to share it. They're just basically ignoring everything Sam and Dean say because they finally got what they came for. They have proof of ghosts and they're just too uninformed to know that they should be way more scared than they are. Meanwhile, Sam and Dean are supremely unimpressed. Their conversations are even subtitled because remember, we're watching this as an episode of Ghost Facers and they're not entirely clear in their speech. So the Ghost Facers decided to subtitle what they were saying, that they're getting off on this. It's just a death echo. It's not even anything related to the Morton house. Why is it even here? There was no evidence that anyone was ever shot there. Why is this ghost here at all? And Spruce, who is smartly paying attention to Sam and Dean, asks, what's a death echo? Sam explains that they've got a much bigger problem here and that ghost is not it. Dean explains what a death echo is, that it just reenacts its death over and over and over again. And it's neither dangerous nor scary. And it's definitely not what's caused all the problems all, all these years at the Morton house. And they're becoming even more urgent to get everybody out of the house. Sam and Dean are actually having a little bit of success getting them at least moving toward the door when Ed's like, wait, and stops everybody. Where's Corbett? Because Corbett decided to take the initiative to go back upstairs to investigate. He's trying to communicate with the ghost. He wants to impress Ed, I guess. But he goes upstairs alone. So nobody ends up leaving yet. Because they can't leave Corbett behind. They'll leave all their equipment behind. They can come back for that in the morning when the danger has passed. But they cannot leave without a human being. Corbett's actually starting to look a little bit more confident. He's not panting in terror anymore. He's like, okay, I, I, I got this, I think. He switches on his night vision, and as the camera facing him switches over to night vision, we see something horrific behind him. A huge figure of a man whose eyes are glowing a little bit because of the night vision. I mean, Corbett's eyes are glowing a little because of the night vision, too. Then back downstairs, we just hear him scream. 
and everybody races because they know something horrible has happened to him. Everybody races upstairs except Sam and Dean who are just like, guys, no, fuck. You know, you can tell what that they're cursing because they have the little skulls over their mouths. <laughs> but they're just absolutely frustrated with these idiots. While everybody's scampering around upstairs, we see Corbett getting dragged against his will. You know, let me go. And he, you can still hear him screaming, but he's clearly not upstairs anymore. Everybody else is just running around like headless chickens trying to find him with no clue of just how much danger there is here. And while we can hear the echoes of his screams in the house and nobody can find him, we flash over to a clock that says Morton House, 11.59 p.m. And then it switches to 12 a.m. So it is now officially February 29th and the Morton House has claimed its first victim. Sam and Dean try and hustle everybody out. By the time they get to the door, it's too late. Sam is pissed. Oh, go hunt the Morton house, you said. It's like our Grand Canyon. I've written a lot about what the Grand Canyon signifies in this show, but it's usually avoiding of a terrible thing, taking five minutes. It's a break. It should have been easy for them to finish this hunt. Some Something that was like a lifelong ambition for them to hunt the Morton house. They thought it was going to be like something productive to do that they knew would be a hunt on this time, on this date, in this place, and they were doing so would save a lot of lives. But now they're trapped here because the ghost facers were there. Sam says, you've got two months left, Dean, but instead we're going to die tonight. Sam picks up a chair and whacks it against the front door and nothing happens. The chair breaks. It's a ghost lockdown, as Sam and Dean explain to Spruce, who is the only one smartly asking questions now. Yeah, in some of the Ghost Facers outtakes on that little video I mentioned at the beginning, Harry talks about how they're amateurs with their salt or whatever. And it's like, well, geez, if Corbett had had a handful of salt, he would be alive and safe right now. And you all would be outside and you would have survived this experience intact. But he didn't know enough to have a handful of salt on him. He didn't know enough to have iron. He had all these video recordings, equipment things strapped to his body, but he didn't even have an iron poker or any sort of weapon against a ghost because they weren't looking to hunt it. They were looking to prove that it existed at all, which is a very different mindset with which to approach something that we all know in the supernatural universe exists. There's no need to prove that to us, the audience, that it exists. While Dean is explaining that this is not a death echo, that this is something that wants them scared, the cameras and lights start fritzing again. Spruce captures Maggie and Harry rushing to her side and taking her hand. So it's clear that even despite Harry's worries that Corbett's crush on Ed would be bad for the team overall, he's clearly got something going on with Maggie. So only just a little bit hypocritical there, Harry. As everything starts fritzing, they all huddle together. And as soon as the thing appears, Dean immediately recognizes it as a death echo. He's like, is this the same one you saw before? And they're all like, no, this is a different guy. Dean turns to Sam's like multiple echoes in one place. What on earth is going on in this house? Dean runs over trying to break the death echoes loop to free it by yelling at it. He's just like, hey, you're dead. Wake up. Be dead. Everybody's like, what the hell is he doing? And Sam has to explain that you can shock a death echo out of its loop and free it. But you usually have to have some sort of connection to it. And you have to be able to access the part of the ghost that still remembers being human rather than just these terrified moments right before its death. Obviously, it doesn't work, but this death echo died by being run over by a train. And Dean almost dives out of the way because, you know, he hears the train coming, sees the light, and sees the guy get flattened by a train that's not there. Because there never was a train that ran through the living room of this house. This man clearly did not die here. So why is his death echo here? But at least now the ghost facers are listening to Sam and Dean. Sam explains what a death echo is. 
Maggie tries to ask, what are they doing here now? If they didn't live or die here. And Dean's like, yeah, give the lady a cigar. He turns around to look at Maggie and just sees her camera up in front of her face and talks into the camera. He's like, does looking at this nightmare through that lens make you feel any better? And she's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it does. But now that they're trapped inside the house, we get an outsider's perspective on how Sam and Dean investigate a haunting. They start looking through the guy's stuff. They discover that he'd worked as a janitor at the local hospital and then died of a heart attack in 1964. His little office there is completely stocked up with sea rations. That's like all he ate apparently in life, that he just subsisted on prepackaged food, like some sort of early prepper or just a severely isolated person. So while Sam and Dean are methodically searching this office, poking through all of his belongings, trying to understand the man that that was the the last resident of this building, Ed is beginning to freak out. He's like, I don't understand why you're wasting all this time. We should be tearing up the floorboards looking for Corbett. We've got to get him back. Meanwhile, Sam has found some survival under an atomic attack manuals and just general survivalist gear. He was planning on there being nuclear war. Dean finds a box filled with things that Freeman Daggett obviously never wanted leaked to the world. A taxidermy book and three toe tags. A gunshot victim, someone who was hit by a train... And a suicide. So people who would not have been claimed by any relatives or anything. And he just kind of quietly took them out of the hospital. Everybody forms their own thoughts. Sam's just like, and everybody else doesn't get it. And Dean has to tell them he brought them home to play. And then everybody gets it. He taxidermied these corpses. And that's why there's ghosts are trapped in this house as death echoes. In the midst of all of this, they finally notice Maggie has gone off, as terrified as she is, to look for Corbett. She frightens herself, shining her flashlight onto a mirror, filming herself in the mirror, and that scares her. So it's like, geez, Maggie, you really should not just be walking around alone here. But she's trying to be brave. She wants to find and save Corbett. Her camera starts fritzing and she turns around and is face to face with Dean, who was just like closer to the herd. But they found her. At least she's safe for now. They're all back in the main room and we're getting several different camera angles. We see Spruce filming from the other side of the room besides Sam as the camera fritzes out and then comes back. When it comes back, Sam is gone. All that's left is his flashlight. Very differently from when Corbett was taken and had to be dragged away, screaming, Sam just vanished right there in in the group of all of them together. So Daggett obviously has powers that (laughs) he did not exercise earlier. His situation just got way more dangerous. But at least now, everybody is searching the house. Dana is searching for Sam. Everybody else is searching for Corbett. Harry and Maggie get a little private moment where they're in a room and she admits how scared she is. And Harry tries to tell her it's going to be okay and shuffles his feet over to her. And Spruce catches them kissing. But he also catches Ed catching them kissing. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh. Things almost come to fisticuffs over it. Ed clearly had no idea that Harry and Maggie were in a relationship of any sort. And he's angry, he's furious about it. He tells Spruce to hold his glasses and goes in like he's going to fight Harry over his sister. And it's like, dude, you're all adults. I mean, yeah, maybe they should have mentioned, hey, yeah, we're dating or something. But like, (laughs) this is insane. Dean has to come in and break them apart. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) We're down by two people. And then he, you know, reminder, a person that you know and care about has already disappeared. Maybe this isn't the time to be hashing out these sorts of idiotic problems here, you know? And then Dean storms off calling out Sam's name. And they're like, uh, yeah, sorry. 
The next shot we see is from Corbett's cameras, just cut from all of his camera footage. Corbett has blood trickling down from his temple. You hear Sam's voice trying to rouse him as It's My Party plays in the background, then gets to the end of a sentence and just fizzles out and then skips back. So the record is skipping at a really weird place. This isn't how records normally skip. This is a deliberate time loopy sort of reminder thing. Sam tries to rouse Corbett and Corbett finally does come back to consciousness just a little bit. Corbett recognizes Sam. (laughs) He also recognizes these corpses posed around the table they're seated at and tied to the chairs at, who are all being forced to celebrate a weird, depressing birthday party. But we can see Sam at the other end of the table, trying to encourage Corbett to stay awake. Meanwhile, while Sam's talking, our ghost comes into the shot, picks up a long spear-looking thing, like a poker of some sort, and stabs Corbett through the back of the neck, and we see it come out his throat on all from all of his different camera angles, and Sam looking horrified as he watches Corbett die in front of him. You know, Sam's like, shit, um, am I next? There's nothing he can do. He's tied to a chair. He can't run away. He can't fight. He can't move. Meanwhile, Dean is left to piece everything together and solve the mystery of where Sam and Corbett have been taken to. Dean's like, He was a Cold War nut. He had all these sea rations. He was into taxidermy. He tries to put all these pieces together, and then he he gets it. Everybody's talking about like how it must have been a really lonely life and a really you know depressing life. And Dean figures it out. He was scared. He was scared. But what was he scared of? He was scared of nuclear bombs falling. So bomb shelter. Back in the bomb shelter where Sam's at the worst birthday party he's ever been to. Daggett comes over to him and Sam's like, get away from me. Don't touch me. You know, doing anything he can to not end up like Corbett did. Daggett's like, don't worry. This won't hurt. Just hold still. And we can see Daggett's back blocking our view of Sam from Corbett's camera. And we think, oh shit, is he hurting Sam? He better not be hurting Sam. When he moves away again, we see what he did to Sam. He put an awful little party hat on Sam. But back upstairs, Dean has figured it out. He tries to get everybody down to the basement because that's where the bomb shelter would be. But as soon as he and Spruce are through the door, the door slams behind them and locks. Ed and Harry are still, and Maggie are still stuck on the other side of it. So Dean starts giving them orders. Go to my duffel bag. There's some salt. Make a circle and get it in. Get in your duffel bag. In the salt, you morons. Get in the salt. So he's giving them the weapons that they need to protect themselves so they don't get taken while Dean's trying to save everybody else. Dean and Spruce continue investigating the downstairs since they're trapped there anyway, while Ed, Harry, and Maggie are in the salt circle, panicking, especially Harry. Harry's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And Ed's like, we're not going to die. He's the one who's actually calming the situation. And he jokes, you know, like, if we survive, you know, I don't mind if you're doing my sister. And then, of course, Maggie's standing right there filming this interaction. So she just punches him or while they're distracted by their shenanigans, everything starts flickering and flashing again. And Maggie warns them that something's coming again. So they all huddle together. And when they look back up, the thing that's come this time is Corbett whimpering and afraid and in pain because he's a death echo now. While Dean's searching around the basement looking for the entrance to this purported bomb shelter that he thinks that Daggett may have built, Spruce is being a good interviewer. He's asking Dean, you know, about earlier when you said you only had two months left, and Dean starts answering him. He starts saying, yeah, well, it's complicated, you know, a while back this... And then Dean catches himself and he's like, ah, no, fuck this. I'm not telling my bullshit problems to some bullshit reality show. Spruce just asks, uh, is it cancer? And Dean's like, shut up and goes right back to work. But while they're shut up, Dean hears something weird. He can hear the stupid music playing on its little repeated loop from a wall behind a giant metal cupboard. Inside the room, Daggett's got his weapon again, and he's just telling Sam, you're going to come to my party, right? I get lonely. 
Sam is obviously doing his best to resist and hold out, but Daggett's now circling back behind, around behind him with his weapon just as Dean breaks through the door. Dean gets a shot, a shot off with his salt gun and Daggett evaporates and he's able to run around and free Sam. Sam, Dean, and Spruce now have to deal with the fact that Corbett is dead while Harry, Ed, and Maggie are trying to deal with it upstairs because they only know he's dead from the death echo, but Ed is clearly broken up about his death. Dean pops a couple of spent shells out of his shotgun and reloads, and Spruce asks, are those real bullets? And Dean's like, uh, no, it's rock salt. Sam explains everything that Daggett told him, that he's lonely, that he just wanted to have a party and nobody would come, so he brought these bodies home and taxidermied them so that they could have a party forever. And he set them up in his basement, had the party, locked them in the bomb shelter, went upstairs, and overdosed on horse tranquilizers. He didn't have a heart attack. He died by his own hand. He was just lonely. Meanwhile, upstairs, they're still trying to cope with their friend becoming a death echo to have to repeat his death over and over again like this. Harry is quietly singing the Ghost Facers theme song, while Ed is just sitting there rocking and trying to come to terms with the death of this person he was friends with. And then the death echo comes back. Corbett's there again. Ed is the one who's finally like, guys, we can't leave him like this. We can't let him stay trapped in this horrible moment. And he gets up. He's like, we've got to do something. He slowly approaches the line of salt and he cautiously starts to step over it. And Harry's like, don't do it. And he does. He's like, I can't, I have to. Corbett starts fritzing and Ed retreats really quickly for a second, but he goes back. He's brave and he continues to confront him. While Dean is downstairs trying to hack through the door to break back into the upstairs again, Sam is waiting a few stairs down and Spruce is filming from a few stairs below that. And Sam looks down at him and is like, you're still filming? And Dean's like, yeah, it makes them feel better. Don't ask. Then the camera starts glitching again. And Spruce is like, uh, guys, guys, we have a problem because Freeman Daggett is back and he's not happy that they busted Sam out of his little party. He grabs Spruce and just throws him across the room and Sam follows in with a salt gun and dissipates the spirit once again. Meanwhile, back upstairs, Harry has to break it to Ed because Ed's panicking because he can't get through to Corbett. He's going to just keep dying over and over again. He can't stop him from dying. And Harry has to be the one who's like, I know how we can get through to him. Ed, he had feelings for you. And Ed's like, what? And Harry had to explain it. Harry then tries to clarify that, you know, he wanted you. And Ed still doesn't get it. Harry's like, you've got to be brave. You're the bravest of all of us. And Maggie even agrees. Harry gives him the little pep talk and is like, you've got to go be gay for that poor dead intern. Finally, Ed crosses out of the salt circle yet again. But it's like they've already gotten through to him even just a little bit. Because through all of this, Corbett was just standing there in the background. Like he was trying to focus. Like he was trying to grasp on. Like he recognized their voices. Because all the other death echoes just continued on with their deaths. They didn't stop and just stand. So just being there has helped a little bit. And he starts with the, you meant a lot to the team. And then he clarifies and it's hard for him. And you could see the tears on his face as he's saying this, you meant a lot to me. And then he just talks about what a good guy Corbett was, which blends right into, because I love you. I really, truly love you. And that's what gets Corbett to stop suffering. And he realizes where he is and what's happened. He snaps out of his loop. Ed pleads with him to help them right now, and it cuts back downstairs, and behind Sam and Dean, Daggett appears again, and starts flinging everybody around. Just when they think all is lost, Corbett shows up, and oh gosh, he is brave now. He sees Daggett like twice his size, and Daggett sees him, and Corbett charges him, and grapples with him, and fights with him, because Corbett's not lonely like Daggett is, and he's not scared like Daggett is. He's fighting for the people he loves. 
because they asked him to. Well, Ed specifically asked him to. It's a kind of an amazingly cool shot because as we watch Corbett charge Daggett, one of the camera angles we see briefly is the front facing camera on Corbett, his body at the table on the other side of the room and see Corbett attacking Daggett in the background, dissipating in a cloud as Corbett defeats him. Then their cameras flicker and come back to life properly and the ghosts are all gone. The next shots we get are at dawn. They're all leaving the house while Ed narrates over about what they've lost and the fact that they all, the rest of them survived and came through this ordeal and they have new allies as a shot of Sam handing Ed a piece of paper with which we assume has his contact information on it. And it cuts back to the scene we had at the beginning of them sitting in front of their fake little fire making their pilot episode looking very seriously into the camera. They're trying to seem very serious and full of platitudes and, you know, every day is a new beginning and ghost facers were forced to face something much more scary than ghosts. They were forced to face themselves. (laughs) Which is hilarious. Yeah, they're terrifying, honestly. Then it focuses in on Ed, and he talks a little bit about Corbett. You know, we hope you're watching over us, and who knew we'd have a ghost on the team? And Harry's like, yeah, you're a full ghost facer. And it's like, all this time we thought we were teaching you, but you were teaching us about heart and dedication and, you know, how gay love can pierce through the veil of death and save the day. Then we get our cheesy little montage with the last little interview clip with Corbett. Is Spruce asking him what he thinks is going to happen tonight? Corbett's just like very seriously, I think all of our dreams are going to come true. And I mean, did they kind of? I mean, Ed admitted he loved him. And I mean, I don't think dying tragically and horrifically like that was one of his dreams. And then we zoom back out of the final title card, you know, dedicated to Corbett. And we realize we're watching this on a TV screen. And we change to another angle and we realize Sam and Dean were watching this on a TV screen. And this is obviously at least a few days later, Sam's cuts and stuff on his face from being banged up by Freeman Daggett are healing. And they've had time to edit this whole movie together and probably have Corbett's funeral. I don't know how they handled any of that, but (laughs) it's kind of irrelevant to this part of the episode where we see that, yes, the ghost facers did call Sam and Dean back in to show them the pilot episode of their show. They ask Sam and Dean what they thought. Dean's like, yeah, I kind of think it's half awesome. And Sam's like, yeah, it's amazing how you were able to walk that fine line between using this person's death for your own gain. But, you know, they should deliberately show Dean reaching down to a bag by his feet on the floor and doing something with it as they stand up and are ready to leave. And Ed's like, yeah, no, that's reality, man. He says they're looking for the truth and it's our job to share it with the world. And Sam and Dean are like, uh, yeah. Some truths you just can't share with the world, Sonny. Come on. Sam's like, nothing good ever happens from sharing the truth. You get a straitjacket or a punch in the face or sometimes both, Dean adds. And they're still taking it as, oh, you're just jealous because we got the footage. And it's like Sam and Dean have had a lifetime to capture footage of it. But there's no point because that's not the point. They're not trying to prove anything. It's just their reality. As soon as Sam and Dean are gone, though, their general consensus is that Sam and Dean are just dicks. <laughs> they find the bag that Dean had had at his feet. And he's like, ah, let's see what's in here. What did they leave behind? He pulls it out and it's a giant electromagnet that is clearly triggered as he lifts it out of the bag. And it starts deleting everything on all of their computers, all their video footage of everything that had happened, including Sam and Dean's continued existence that they absolutely could not let leak to the world. And it's all just wiped away. Meanwhile, outside, Sam's like, did we get away clean? You know, they hear everybody shouting from inside the house and they're like, uh, yep, it's all good. And the final statement of the show is Sam and Dean lamenting that you know, it's too bad that we couldn't let the ghost facers 
go public with that, you know, kind of like the show. And Sam's like, yeah, it had its moments. As Sam and Dean pull back into the show we know as Supernatural, <laughs> away from the Ghost Facers and back to their lives that we watch as a TV show. The unscripted, supposedly, Ghost Hunter show, The Ghost Facers, had to go because Supernatural and the Winchesters were back. So, a little meta statement about the writer's strike again at the end, and we're back to Supernatural. But now there's only three episodes left in the season. So in making this episode, they realized we got to do something that we can throw together really easily and that will reset where we are, remind viewers where we are, but also push a bunch of stuff off the table that we'd been setting up very carefully to this point with the intention of having nine more episodes after this point, not three. It was around this point where Kripke was just like, Dean's going to have to go to hell. There's no logical way we can explain for him to be saved from that. We'll figure out how to save him from hell again in season four. But we just need to finish out these last few episodes with a story that makes sense. They didn't even know if they were going to be renewed for season four at this point yet. They didn't know that until after the season had finished. So this was all still up in the air. And it could have very well ended at the end of season three, where they left it with Dean in hell. But luckily, they wrote a compelling enough finale, a gripping enough finale, that the network was like, okay, you can stay. We got to see how this resolves. So I guess it worked out for them on many levels. And it worked out for the fandom in general, because we get Cass out of the deal, and we break a loop, which is honestly the most important thing to do in the show. Break all the loops, which is one thing we're going to do in next week's episode, season three, episode 14, Long Distance Call, with uh, Stewie, the poor schlub of a phone operator who also kind of dwelled in a grimy sort of basement and clearly needed some better friends. <laughs> anyway, until then, you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter at Mittensmorgel or at SPN George. You can find me on Discord at Mittens, hashtag 4865, or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail.com, and I look forward to talking with all of you. Oh, I'm so sorry if this episode is a little bit of me being super distracted, but it's been a really distracting 24 hours, uh, you know, with the fall of civil rights in the United States overnight, so like, um, <laughs> to anyone not in this country, um... I apologize, especially because, yeah, it's been it's been a very rough kind of 24 hours. So <laughs> I don't even know what to say at this point. I was gonna try and get ahead on episodes because I'm gonna have to be probably I might need to take a hiatus week here in a few weeks for personal stuff that I have to do, and I just will be out of town for a few days, and I'm just like I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do an episode. So it's like. I could probably start recording ahead and stuff. And it's like, well, not if the world keeps catching fire. I can't do that. I, uh, uh, it's hard enough to keep up with everything as it is. So I might actually have to, I'm debating what to do about that now. So if anyone has any input on that, <laughs> let me know. I can do two couple of half-assed episodes or <laughs> squeeze them together, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. I was just letting folks know that's coming up, probably. Not till the end of the month, though. It's only May 3rd. <laughs> or, actually, no, it's May 4th now. May the 4th be with you all. Probably, you know, two days late by the time you hear this. Or at least two days late by the time you hear this. Unless you're listening to this in another year. Which, okay, hi, from the past, I guess. <laughs> Have a good one, everybody.